News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. Well, there has been a lot of criticism directed at the U.S. government for not being forthcoming enough about what they know and what they don't know about these objects that are being shot down over North American airspace. But now we have heard from U.S. President Joe Biden on that. And for more, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global Washington correspondent. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. So what has the president had to say? Well, I mean, to be honest, the president didn't say anything that we hadn't already heard from the National Security Council, that we hadn't heard from members from the Pentagon, from the intel communities, and from members of Congress themselves, in that there is still no definitive answer. The president did give a hint that these balloons were likely not linked to China, that they likely had ties to commercial activities around the United States, not government activities. But because none of the uh, materials from any of these three downed objects, not that many spy balloon, but the three other ones that were shot down haven't been uh, recovered yet. It it has raised questions as to how is the White House able to provide this information if they don't have the physical information in their hands. So while we did hear from the president, it has simply raised more questions as to if it was nothing, why didn't you come forward sooner? And they didn't answer that question? Well, they didn't answer that question. He said that the president said that uh, the investigations are still underway. The recovery efforts are still underway. But at the same time saying we, you know, we can almost be certain that these aren't uh, a hostile nation or foreign nation spy balloon program apparatus that are floating uh, in the air. But it, it, it did leave more questions. Uh, and it also has raised that question. Well, if these are from a commercial, you know, entity somewhere in the United States, none of these entities are now coming forward, possibly fearful of, of some form of um, a consequence that they might face. But at the end of the day, nobody is coming forward to say that they are at fault as well, adding to the piling questions that the White House is facing. OK, so even though he spoke, then it sounds like there's still just as many questions as there were before. Absolutely. Uh, look, when the president came out yesterday, this was a highly sought after, um, you know, roundup from the president to try and get some answers. Now, look, we did hear that the president is going to put a task force together. They are going to create guidelines to ensure that if unmanned objects are being launched into the sky, that there are going to be rules and that there's going to have to be um, a database to be able to keep track of what is up there. Uh, and he also made a point of saying, look, there's not a, an, you know, uh, an abundance of things that we aren't seeing in the sky. We've simply had to narrow our focus on radars because of recent events. And because of that, we're picking things up. But there's not a, an influx of foreign adversaries uh, in the air. But it didn't answer other questions. And there are Republicans who are saying, look, after the president spoke, after we had these uh, classified intelligence briefings earlier in the week, None of the information still makes any sense, and we are still waiting for answers. So this may have satisfied a call to hear from the president. It has not satisfied calls from within his party or from within the Republican Party to get to the bottom of why did we shoot these things down if we didn't think they were anything? And if they weren't anything, do we do this now going forward? It, it also, what about the diplomatic aspect here? Like, what about, did anybody ask them about that? About what about relations with China at this point? Are they worried about that? Well, so the president made it clear that he seeks competition with China 
and not conflict. And remember, the original spy balloon did, uh, according to reporting, come from the south coast of China. It was originally expected to be hovering over Hawaii and Guam and blown off course. There were Republicans that are pushing back on that, saying that it doesn't make sense if it had maneuverable aspects to it, that it just accidentally veered off course. Still, the president said that he intends to talk to the Chinese president in the future with no time frame, uh, but does not want to create any more hostilities uh, than exist already. We're waiting to find out if the uh, if the U.S. top diplomat, uh, Anthony Blinken, is going to reschedule a meeting with China's top diplomat after that was scrubbed with the original balloon. So this is a president actively trying to ensure that a wide rift in a, in a, a geopolitical relationship isn't growing any further. The problem is China is already hitting back. They're angry that the U.S. blew up that first balloon. They are angry that there have been um, kind of consequences put on its military and the ability to access U.S. technology. China has threatened a countermeasure. We don't know what that is. Hard to see how this relationship isn't going to get further strained. Mm. All right. Thank you for the update. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Hi, Simi. The speeding song, Highway Star by Deep Purple. It's a great rocking speeding song. Thank you for that. And just listening to it right there, I can see why people chose it. This was not in my repertoire of songs that I like to listen to in the car. But I'm adding it because by far it has been the number one choice this morning from people. Uh, I probably had like almost a dozen emails telling me this was the song and we've had some buzz lines on that too. So thank you. You can keep it coming. Simi at cknw.com. Call or text our buzz line as well and let me know. All right. It was only around for a year, but it was pretty controversial. And this week, Vancouver City Council voted six to three to get rid of the single cup fee. It will be gone by June the 1st. We had a chance to speak with Councillor Rebecca Bly about why she felt so strongly about, about getting rid of this. I don't think that sort of a top-down stick approach with a with a fee inspires people to change their behavior. It actually, I think, inspires resignation to say, oh, well, everything in Vancouver is more expensive, even a cup of coffee. And that was really the problem we were seeing. We've got to keep our eye on policy that can actually reduce waste. But we also have to recognize when something is harming the affordability across the city and generally speaking, making life more difficult for both businesses and residents and and pivot away from those types of policies and find something more effective. Okay, but was it maybe right policy, wrong way to implement it? Because not everyone thinks it should have been removed. Joining us now to talk more about that is Green Party City Councillor in Vancouver, Pete Fry. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Okay, now you voted against this. Did did you want to keep it? Uh, I was uh, hoping to add some amendments which weren't uh, weren't received, um, but I was hoping to yeah really amend some of the direction and and come up with something meaningful. I think everybody recognizes that the amount of uh, poly coated paper cups that end up in the garbage in Vancouver is is just unsustainable and it continues to grow and certainly over over the course of the pandemic and stuff where we saw more and more to go uh we realized that there's there needs to be a better solution and the current status quo is not working at all so we're kind of going back to the status quo i you know among the amendments that i'd i'd hope to have uh, the rest of council support were we're waiting out for the actual scheduled report back so we had directed staff before when we actually enacted this um, original bylaw to report back in September on some of the findings and, and, and next steps. And that, that obviously isn't going to happen now. Uh, the other big one that I was hoping we could really um, implement, and I think this is an important distinction, that, that we've always kind of been paying a cup fee. Like those, those cups, 
uh, and lids and, and what have you, they're baked into the cost of, of your purchase, whether or not you are dining in-house or taking it to go. Um, you, you are, even if you're not, you know, many, many places don't even offer a discount if you show up with your, with your own cup. In fact, I would say the majority of places don't offer a discount because what we heard from vendors is that it's too complicated to disaggregate the cost of the cup to then discount um, uh, the, the, the customer for if they bring their own cup, for instance. So we're talking about sort of uh, an imposition on consumers that forces you to pay for this reusable, of uh, this sorry, single-use uh, plastic cup. And, and then puts the burden on, on, on society to dispose of them. Okay, so what so, would be the better way to do this then? Well, the amendment I'd put forward was to actually have, since we have this infrastructure now where they're actually putting a, a, a separate line item for the, this cup fee, which admittedly was an arbitrary number at 25 cents, put in the actual cost of the cup. What is the, the cost that the consumers are paying for that cup that is at the wholesale cost, whatever the markup is, Put that cost in the line item of the item. So if you get a double-lined cup, you're paying twice the cost of that wholesale cup. And then allow the option for, for folks who bring in their own cup to get a discount on the cost of their, their, uh, their, their beverage. Right. What about the idea, I know that when we spoke to Councillor Blah yesterday, she felt that this should be part of the overall recycling program, that if we, if people are so used to putting things in blue boxes and things like that, that we need to expand that, and that's not a city issue. Well, so poly, polycoated cups are actually now accepted in your blue box recycling. But, you know, when people are saying it's inconvenient to to bring home a, a, or bring along a reusable cup, they're certainly not going to bring home a, a, a dirty used paper cup uh, and to put in their blue box. That's just not realistic. So the reality is, is that they end up in the waste stream. Um, where the opportunity for a sort of meaningful recycling of these, now bearing in mind that you really can't recycle uh, polycoated cups, they end up in the incinerator. If we wanted to remove them from the landfill waste stream in a meaningful way, we could uh, put some kind of deposit system on them, but that, that that's known as extended producer responsibility. And that would be something that actually comes through a provincial mandate. And similar to what you would see on, on a pop can or a beer can, it's worth, you know, X amount of cents and, and, and binners would go through the, the, the trash and collect them and redeem them for money. But that's, that's not, not happening at this point. Okay. Will you try again, do you think? Well, one of the other options that I suggested is we, we have in the past um, financed as the city of Vancouver, a program called the binners program. Uh, and, and they had a, uh, an event called Coffee Cup Revolution, where we we provided the binners program with a grant that they could then redeem these cups for. So folks went out, collected cups out of the trash, brought them back to this event, and then redeemed them and and got money back. Now that was supported by the city of Vancouver through a grant. Um, arguably, that grant is a lot less than the overall cost um, for for removing uh, polycoated cups from our, our waste stream, which you know volumetrically take up a lot of room in these trash cans and. and and mean more frequent uh, trips to empty the cans. Right. And, you know, the, the, the other thing to sort of articulate is that there's, with a lot of these sort of cups, single-use single beverage cups, there's no standard. Uh, and we run into this all the time when people talk about, oh, it's a compostable plastic cup or it's a corn cup or whatever it is. There's, we don't have a standard air quotes, compostable cups. So they compost, they break down at very different levels. So really they just contaminate the organic stream when people put them in the organic stream, so they're useless. And they end up having to be removed from the organic stream 
and then incinerated because they're very contaminated. It's not good for anything. So, you know, if in a perfect world, if we had some kind of like standard, um, that, that would solve that, but that's not going to happen. So again, it comes back to this opportunity for the circular economy. And, and what's really unfortunate is that we, we had uh, corporations and like homegrown green tech startups that were ready to, were starting to bring online viable cup share programs. And we were seeing big chains like a and uh, to their credit, have been early adopters of this kind of stuff. But we've seen Starbucks and Tim Hortons coming around to it. Lots of smaller coffee shops are are getting involved in these. So there's a, there's a whole program out there, a whole ecosystem where po- folks have cup shares. And these work great in closed-loop systems like UBC has been doing it for years. You, you, you go in, fill your cup, you have a sort of cup membership, as it were. And you, and you throw it in a bin and you just it, it, it goes and gets washed in an institutional setting. So it doesn't put the burden on the on the, the small coffee shop necessarily to actually have a dishwasher on site. Right. They just have a bin that is those cups are collected and then recirculated once they're cleaned. Right. But just on a final note here, then, Pete, because I think now people think like, oh, it's done. That didn't work. We're not doing it anymore. So are you, are you disappointed then that people might have that impression that we're not going to try to do this again? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm disappointed on the whole with, with I think, ABC's approach to uh, climate and environmental issues. And I think there was a, a number of kind of moves that they've been making that uh, show not a huge commitment to waste reduction or climate change. So I, I, I think, yeah, this probably is not going to come back anytime soon. And, uh, and, you know, maybe we might see the province step in and, and, and start to take this seriously because yeah. it's obviously a, a big issue. And, and certainly... When we look over to other jurisdictions, Quebec is really moving ahead on this. All the European Union nations are very far ahead. In Spain, you have to pay half a euro on any single-use item that you get from a food vendor um, in an effort to reduce single waste. Because we know that other 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 jurisdictions are choking on the single-use uh, waste. It's just it's 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 unsustainable and it's only getting worse. And we need to start coming up with with viable pivots. One of the Big right. partners that we were hoping to see come on board, but this was was the uh, skip the dishes, DoorDash kind of kind of model, where we we could really reduce a lot of unnecessary single use waste. Hmm. All right. Well, listen. Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. All right. Have Appreciate a great day. that. You too. That's Pete Fry, Green Party Councillor, talking about the end of the single cup disposable fee. Uh, hoping that at some point will there'll be a way to revisit that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This morning, we are also going to be talking about what is going on at our ports and our docks. There's a lot of concern about expansion at the docks. How are we going to find enough people to do that? And there is concern that maybe more of it is going to become automated and that has people worried for the sake of future jobs in that arena. Well, joining us now is Rob Ashton, president of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. Rob, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. My pleasure. How big of a concern is this as automation might kind of take over on the docks? It's a, it's a very massive concern for our union, uh, especially when uh, it's a government organization such as the Port of Vancouver, a quasi-government organization, saying that they want to build uh, a, a new site so that some company, which they don't have uh, yet, can come in and have the final say on the level of automation in the terminal. Because if the government of Canada approves it, uh, what will happen is it will force our, fir- our current conventional terminals, container terminals, to automate faster than they would, if they would at all, which would in turn um, cost us 
many, many jobs. Uh, we did a report by PRISM in 2019 where it showed that a greenfield terminal, which this will be, brand new terminal, could see upwards of around 90% job loss. And then if our current terminals will have to automate to keep to keep pace with that, we could look at a, upwards of around 50% job loss, according to the PRISM report. Huh. Okay, so if the Port of Vancouver is saying they're going to let the companies that use the terminal decide, I mean, do they do that with anything else? Like, why do the companies get the say on this? So I, I, I couldn't honestly tell you, but everything that the Port have been telling us is that it'll create 1,400 on-site jobs. And we said, okay, well, show us where those 1,400 on-site jobs are. And we've been asking for a few years now, and they've never come back to, to tell us where these jobs will. Because at the end of the day company X, whoever runs the terminal, will have the final say in the automation levels. And we've proven in, in British Columbia that having uh, uh, conventional terminals that are employed, employ workers of Canada, uh, actually outwork terminals that are automated. So is there a balance here, Rob, then? Is there some automation that can be used or is this going, in your opinion, too far? So the levels of automation at the Port of Vancouver are suggesting that this terminal have are going way too far. Um, basically, all horizontal equipment, so tractor trailers that, that shuttle the containers around on the site, and the rail, what they'll be is rail-mounted gantries that move the containers in the blocks will all be automated. That's, that's a little too far for our, for, our, uh, for our likings. Now, currently, our current terminals have one to automated, uh, one of our terminals went to an automated rail system with rail-mounted gantries. But that was a negotiated process. And we protected some jobs. And yes, we lost a couple of jobs as well. Uh, but that was through uh, discussions and negotiations with our employers, which we're not being allowed to do at this point with this new build. Okay, so what are the next steps here? Like, what? how soon could this happen? Uh, I would say the decision is imminent. Or imminent sorry. Um, they, they need to have an answer within the next month or so. Uh, but we feel that uh, this project that has ballooning costs will be uh we're expecting a decision by early march uh, at at the earliest now when just sorry just add on with, with an automated terminal um they come one of the greatest risks that comes with that besides job loss and job loss is huge is also the risk of cyber terrorism so the more automated your systems are uh the more prone to hackers there which right. is a pretty major problem in this day and age well, you know what? I have a feeling we're going to have to follow up with you then when we hear more about this. Rob, thanks for your time this morning. No worries. Thank you. Eh? Yeah, that's Rob Ashton, president of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union. They're worried about plans for more automation at the port, and they say the decision is imminent about just how much automation will be part of the port expansion. We've been hearing about those plans for years, haven't we? This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that's a good one too, right? We've been talking this morning about songs that kind of make you feel like speeding when you're in your car. So the songs that we've been playing this morning are that. We had L.A. Woman earlier. That was a great one by The Doors. What's yours? Now you can email me, simmy at cknw.com. You can also call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899. But I love it. I love the fact that Brian wrote me to say the song that makes me speed is Walking on Sunshine. <laughs> okay, Walking on sunshine. I get it. Now, you said Martha and the muffins, but I thought that was Katrina and the waves. 
So yeah, I, that's what I'm thinking on that one too. But I get it. It's a very upbeat song. Makes you want to go a little fast. Lots of people saying I Can't Drive 55 by Sammy Hagar. Also great choice there. So thank you very much. Keep them coming. Now, the provincial government is providing $30 million to festivals, fairs, and live events this year. They announced that yesterday. These are one-time grants to help get these events back on their feet following pandemic challenges. So does that mean that some popular events, which were pretty much cancelled, might actually go ahead? Well, you know where we're going to start with this, right? We're going to start with the Vancouver Folk Festival. So joining us now is Mark Zieberbeeler, who's the president of the Board of Directors for the Folk Fest. Thank you so much for being back with us. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Well, this sounds like it was really good news. You must be pretty happy. You betcha. It was a great surprise, and uh, I must say that everyone at the board and everyone involved with the festival was just very extremely pleased by the announcement yesterday. It was fantastic news. Okay, so then, Mark, the big question is, will there be able to be a folk festival this year? Well, I I can't say definitively, but what I can say is that we are working and meeting. We actually met last night to discuss this, and we're working throughout the weekend, and hopefully we'll have an announcement very soon to make about that. We're just trying to see if we can pull everything together to make this happen. This was a a very welcome gift, and we're very appreciative of it, and uh, hopefully this will help us uh, put on a festival for this year. All right, so Mark, I'm going to say I expect you to come back on the show and tell us what the decision is. (laughs) Oh, definitely. No problem on that. (laughs) Okay, good. Now, tell me about what it's been like for you the last few weeks, because when we first had you on, it was not a good thing, right, to talk about how this was probably the end of the Vancouver Folk Festival, but what happened after that? Well, um, yeah, I think that's a great question, and uh, it's been a very interesting month. That's what I can say for certainty. Um, What really became apparent quickly uh, was just the outpouring of very enthusiastic support from the community, but from, you know, from uh, long-term festival goers, from people that are just slightly attached to the festival, and also governments, uh, you know, civic governments, uh, provincial governments, Everybody really wanting to see, is this really possible to um, make this festival happen? And that really helped change our mindset in terms of the board, in terms of, well, maybe there is some hope here. And um, we started to discuss what are potential possibilities. And, and we've been working towards that ever since. And this announcement yesterday uh, really helped uh, kickstart it to another level, I think because we can see some actual hope now that this could potentially. We've also started to initiate some fundraising initiatives um, at at the festival as well to help us get over that hump and help us work towards putting on something for this summer. So is there hope then for the long-term viability of this event? Like, is that the goal here is to make sure that this festival can survive for, for years? Well, that would be the long-term goal. And obviously what we would need to do, I mean, Step number one is if we're going to go ahead with a festival this year, that would be our priority for the next few months. But after that, we would need to look at some long-term strategy as how that we, how to ensure the financial sustainability of the organization. We're reaching out to other festivals across the country. Um, we're developing an advisory group of, of those festivals just to sort of help us and advise us and see what's the best path forward for us. And as I mentioned earlier, it, it all ties into those fundraising initiatives that we're starting with and to see if we can help uh, sustain that, uh, that sort of revenue stream, for lack of a better term. Right. Now, Mark, it does sound like, though, that all festivals seem to be going through this. Do you think this industry is just going through a time of change? 
I, I think that's part of it, um, you know, and, and also, as I mentioned earlier, when we came out with the original announcement, you know, the, the environment really changed in terms of the cost in putting these festivals on. Um, and, and it's not just Canadian festivals, it's American festivals, too. They're all experiencing the same issue. So it's really up to us. And, and for everyone that does support these festivals, what can we do to make things differently? We may have to do it differently in the future. I don't know. The, I can't say the answer to that right now, but we just have to keep an open mind and make sure that we all work together, everyone in the community, to make sure that these events can continue in the future. So is there, have you been surprised at all kind of by the outpouring of support? Because it certainly seemed that way, right, after you initially came out. Yes, uh, I was very pleasantly surprised by the outpouring of support and how, for lack of a better term, intense it was. It was but it was a good intensity. It's like people really care about these types of events and, and they care about the Vancouver Folk Music Festival. So to, you know, let's see what we can do to actually make that happen and, and make sure that it can be, uh, put on into the future. The clock is kind of ticking on this, though, isn't it, Mark? Like, how soon does a decision really definitively have to be made? I I would say within the next couple of weeks, to be honest, uh, uh, and that is a very short runway in terms of, of putting together a festival. Um, but I, you know, in talking to people, I, everybody feels it's possible. It's you know, if we keep it within reason, um, to put something together, um, you know, and that's what we're really working hard on right now. And do you have lots more volunteers? Have people come forward to say, listen, I want to get involved? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. Uh, as I said earlier, the, the enthusiastic response from the community when the news first came out, uh, everybody wants to help in some way or fashion. And, and, and so that, that's really rewarding to see that kind of, of support. All right, well, I keep my fingers crossed, crossed, and hopefully we'll hear from you soon about whether or not this is going to happen. Well, I'm walking on sunshine. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I'm going to take that as a very positive thing then. All right, Mark, thank you. Okay, thank you very much. That's Mark Zuberbuehler, who's the president of the board of directors for the Vancouver Folk Music Festival. They met last night to talk about this new funding from the provincial government, $30 million for festivals, fairs, and live events in the province. as a one-time grant that is available to them, uh, essentially ease them through some of this post-pandemic difficulty that a lot of these events seem to be having. So does that mean that an event like the Folk Fest will go on? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding pretty hopeful on that one. I think it will. Uh, They're just ironing out the details now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, here's the question. Did the federal government need to use the Emergencies Act last year to deal with Freedom Convoy protests, or was was it an overreach on their part? That is the question that we hope will be decided by this report coming out this morning. Justice Paul Rouleau led an independent public inquiry into this question. It's all part of the Emergencies Act. Actually, it's built in there that if a government invokes it, there has to be a discussion afterwards about whether or not that was the right thing to do or was it justified. So that report will be tabled in about half an hour or so in Ottawa. And of course, you'll be hearing all about it throughout the day today. But we thought... Let's talk about what we can expect from this. So joining us now is Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Do you feel like this is something that you're going to be teaching about in, if not already, but a year or so from now? Because we've never done this process before, have we? No, we've never done it before. So in class last year, when the Emergencies Act was invoked, it was the subject of considerable conversation. Uh, through the fall, we were anticipating this report uh, coming out today, and, and we will certainly be talking about it in class 
after the report comes out. Unfortunately, next week is reading break, so we're going to have to wait two weeks to discuss it with my students. Um, but yeah, this is huge. Um, and uh, I think, well, I'm not sure if the judge will give us a definitive answer to the legal question as to whether or not the threshold was met. Um, there are court cases that will be answering that question, but he will certainly give us a lot more uh, understanding of the context of the decision, uh, and that, I think, will help our understanding of, of the government's use of it. Yeah, what do you think about the process of this? Because, as I said, this is the first time this has ever been used. I thought the process was good. Um, the, uh, it perhaps needed more time. Uh, it started maybe a bit late. There were a lot of witnesses to hear. And, of course, the judge, I think, has been working pretty hard over the last couple of months to write this report. Um, so if I was going to say anything, um, more time would have perhaps been helpful. Right. OK. And so you must have obviously been following along. What did you find interesting about the process? I found a number of things interesting, um, not least of which was the prime minister's testimony, which closed the uh, the hearings. Uh Justin Trudeau is, is sometimes thought to be a little light on terms of policy issues, but he was very much on top of this one, had a very commanding understanding of the file. I was also interested to note that different cabinet ministers seem to have different interpretations. You know, one would say that the, the border in Coots was the critical moment. Another would say, well, it was actually the Windsor crossing was the, the critical thing. Or some others would say, no, having all these trucks in close proximity to parliament and the central institutions of government. It was almost like they were giving the judge a menu. Um, you know, pick one of these things. Right. Anyone will do. <laughs> we don't know which one's going to work for you, but we're hoping one of them will. Um, it was pretty clear in the testimony that the police uh, did not have a coherent response. The different forces involved, the RCMP, the Ontario Provincial Police and the local police, uh, and even more incoherent was the testimony from, from the various convoy people who, had to, who seemed to have various agendas uh, and, and very little um, sort of... So uh, this sets out a precedent now, though, doesn't it, Hamish? So this is like a, almost like a blueprint then for future governments. Absolutely. Uh, well, hopefully not. Hopefully we won't have to go through this again. True, but, true. Uh, uh, if we do, yes, this, uh, this is um, going to be an example that uh, uh, will be looked at as to what was done right here and, and what could have been done better. Okay, so what are you going to be looking for today? Really, uh, if the judge does not come out with a definitive uh, sort of legal answer to whether or not the threshold was met, uh, was there a national security crisis that could not be dealt with in any other way, uh, I'll be looking for hints <laughs> as to whether or not he thought the threshold was made. Oh, okay, Sarah, I thought we lost you there for a second. We still have you. Okay, so yeah. you'll be looking for whether or not that threshold will be made. Uh, but from what we heard of the witnesses, though, did it not sound to you, Hamish, like there just seemed to be a lot of confusion around that time? Absolutely, um, especially from the police forces. Um, they they obviously miscalculated here, and, and uh, it, you know, this should have been handled by normal police means. But when it was not handled by normal police means, by the Ottawa police and the Ontario Provincial Police in the first instance, uh, we then had an unprecedented situation where the police were unable to do it. Um, and in that circumstance, what, what are the, the alternatives? And that was the situation the government was, was facing. Uh, and, and as we know, they chose this option, uh, which worked um, uh, pretty quickly to get, the, to get the protests cleared out. 
We like to think, Hamish, with situations like this, that we learn from them, or we like to think that politicians learn from them. But do you see any evidence of that? Do you think police forces have learned? Would it happen differently next time if, if you know, it happened again? Well, by all accounts, the, uh, the Ottawa police has learned. There have been threats of, of uh, subsequent protests, which really haven't materialized. But by all accounts, the Ottawa police seems more prepared for them. Um, I would like to think that there's going to be better coordination amongst the different police forces. The, as I say, Ottawa, Ontario Police and RCMP. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Of course, we've just had the announcement that the commissioner of the RCMP is, is resigning short of her mandate ending next month. Uh, so we're going to go for a period of time with an interim leader and then a new RCMP commissioner. So we're going to have to wait and see, I think, on that front of whether police coordination gets better. I guess regardless, uh, for somebody who teaches political science, this is the bread and butter. This is it. It doesn't get any better than this for a professor of political science teaching Canadian politics. All right. Well, you're going to have a busy day. So thanks so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome, Siri. That's Dr. Hamish Telford, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of the Fraser Valley, uh, waiting in about half an hour's time or so for this report to come down on the use of the Emergencies Act by the federal government. Uh, That happened last year. The act is such that it has this mechanism put in place. So the, the, the review of the use of the act is automatic when the act is used. It's never happened before. That's why this is such a fascinating process. And we will hear what is in this report coming up.